continuing in our series talking about the Word made flesh. And here the Word, Jesus, makes a strong call to repentance in a very simple story. And though it's not part of the content of the sermon, I want <coughs> to remind us that when the Word goes out, it does go out with power. And we see that here. It goes out revealing truth, and we see that here. And it also goes out compelling a response, which we see in this passage as well. What we're going to look at are verses 27 to 32 of Luke chapter 5. A very simple story about the calling of Levi in the aftermath of that call. <coughs> Let me read this for us with a reminder once again that this is the very word of the living God. <clears throat> Luke five twenty-seven to 32. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So ends the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word. As we come to it this morning, uh, let's once again join our hearts in prayer. <clears throat> well, God, our Father, we come before your word now and we ask your blessing upon this part of our worship service, that you would bless your word as it goes out, that you would fulfill your promise that it goes out and does not return to you empty, that instead it accomplishes everything you purpose for it and is successful in the things for which you send it. For us, we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. Open our eyes and open our ears to see and hear the things that you have for us this morning. And in so doing, make your word a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, so that we might walk according to everything that it teaches us. Father, we pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. <clears throat> well, again, the text today is simple. The story is simple. It culminates in the call of Jesus to repentance. That's a word that goes out, and it goes out really to the entire world, as Paul said to the pagans in Athens. It's a call to turn, using the word from Ezekiel, to turn and to follow Christ. But the problem is there are competing calls out there. The call of Jesus goes out, but it competes with other tempting calls, seductive calls that distract us, too often shout out the gospel and its call from Jesus Christ. Makes me think of the, the sirens in Greek mythology. Different stories depending on which author you read. But I always think of Homer's Odyssey, because that's what we all have to read in high school. <laughs> and Odysseus, the great hero, <clears throat> trying to make it home in his 
ship with his sailors knows that the island of the sirens is coming and he wants to hear their call, but he doesn't want to be trapped. So he has all the sailors stuff their ears so they can't hear and commands them to tie him to the mast. No matter how hard he cries, do not untie me from the mast. I don't want to be lured away. And that's what the sirens did. They're described as having this incredibly alluring, seductive, tempting call. But when responded to, leads to nothing but sadness and destruction for those who respond. Those are the competing calls. Those are the calls that compete with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They seem beautiful. They seem worth following. They seem worth answering. But they always lead to sadness. They always lead to destruction. And I want to talk about two primary variations of that siren song today. Two variations that lure people away from Christ to alternatives that seem very attractive but are ultimately destructive. We can see them in the context of Luke's passage this morning, Luke's story. One variety is the, the siren call to, well, to pleasure, really. A pleasing, satisfying spiritual encounter. Something that makes me feel good. The other variety of the siren call that distracts us from the call of Christ is the call to knowledge, the call to, the call to wisdom, the ability to figure things out and be certain and sure that in knowing things we can make things around us better. Two seductive calls. But as we'll see, both of these pale in comparison to the true call of Jesus to repentance and faith. So we'll talk about those two calls and then compare them (laughs) to that of Christ. The spiritual encounter. One of the themes that we've seen so far in in Luke at the beginning of Jesus' ministry is how popular Jesus is with the crowds. They follow him everywhere. They make it hard for him to get away and have any time to pray. He's got to go out to the wilderness to have time to pray and be with the Father. They press upon him. Stay with us. Stay with us. Don't go anywhere else. Just some examples already. Chapter 4, verse 42. In chapter 5, we see it in verse 1, verses 15 and 16, and verse 19. The crowds want him. The crowds flock to him. Why? It's kind of interwoven in the text But I think it's pretty clear that the reason they want him to stay is because of the miracles. They've seen a demon rebuked by a mere word and gone. A fever rebuked by a mere word and gone. They've seen many, many, many people healed. Many demons cast out and driven away. They've seen a miraculous catch of fish at a time of day when you shouldn't be able to catch any fish. They've seen a leper cleansed. They've seen a paralyzed man get up, pick up his bed, and walk away. His sins forgiven. Repeatedly, Luke tells us that the people around Jesus are amazed. They're astonished. 
They're in wonder at what he does and the authority with which he teaches. That amazing verse that we saw a couple weeks ago from verse 26. We have seen extraordinary things today. Wow. This is amazing. So what are the crowds looking for? Healing? Sure. Freedom from demon possession? Sure. But there's embedded in there in the amazing response, the awestruck response, seeing extraordinary things. That's what they're really interested in. Show us more of this stuff, Jesus. Show us more of this stuff that you can do. It's a rush. It's an adrenaline high that comes with seeing such an amazing display. And we love those kinds of experiences, those kinds of feelings. We'll dedicate time and money and effort to get that high and get it again and again and again, to go back and have that feeling. It's a siren song, a siren call to feel good, to live the the high life, to go beyond the ordinary life and do extraordinary things. Ordinary Christianity? Eh. Beyond fire for Jesus. We tempt ourselves with it. Go hiking? No, climb a rock without ropes. You might die. Yeah, I might. But it's exciting. <laughs> Swim with the sharks. We laugh, but this is what people do. One experience after the other. Soon the old ones are dull and dead. I'll never do that again. But that, ooh, that looks cool. We're sucked into these things. We love them. And it can be easy and superficial to criticize people who pursue these things. The gods of our bellies, Scripture calls them. Base desires to pursue these rather than the God of Scripture, and yet we do them ourselves. Again, don't be an ordinary Christian. Do great things for God. Be on fire for God. And we see that in our churches. Sometimes it's very blatant, and sometimes it's very, very subtle. In fact, I think it's more often subtle than not. It's attractive. It's appealing. It seems so good. It seems so worthwhile. But what makes this call so dangerous is it lures us away from the heart of the gospel, the basic message of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. It's a shabby substitute. The blatant ones are easy to see. We see it in the snake charmers that we all make fun of, or the TV evangelists, the TV preachers who, who do and say crazy things. But what about the more subtle ones? Think about this. How many people in evangelical churches, and you may have done this in the past yourself. I have. (laughs) How many people today, today, the Lord's Day, are sitting in a worship service where the primary focus is a spiritual high, a sort of spiritual thrill, rather than a true encounter with a living God? Church leaders know it, either instinctively or or explicitly. The typical worship service today has two parts. 
20, 30, maybe more minutes of song. Not just singing. The lights have to be dimmed on the crowd. Different lights focused on the band. Different colors depending on the song. Different moods. I've even heard of fog. Songs repeated. Calls to close your eyes, raise your hands. All, all things which are appropriate in the right circumstance but all designed to evoke a response. The songs are simple. They're emotionally powerful. Repeated for emphasis. To deepen the mood. To deepen the feel. All to ensure or try to ensure that people have, they can walk away saying, boy, I really felt like we worshiped today. That was powerful. really felt God's presence. It's the spiritual version of the thrill-seeker's high. The adrenaline rush. The authentic emotion. What about the message? The second part of the service. The main goal, again, is to lift people up in some way in most of these types of services. What's the message? God loves you. Does he love you? Yes, he loves you. But that's about all that's said. God loves you and has better things for you. Emotional affirmation of those in the congregation. A spiritual version of you're good enough, you're smart enough, and doggone it, God loves you. Here, let me give you a few tips for how to live a better life. And of course, I'm not going to bore you to death, so I'm going to pepper it with a a bunch of really cool stories about how other people have been able to do this and some clever jokes mixed in between. So you'll walk away happy, laughing, you had a great experience, worshiping. What happens Monday? What happens Tuesday? Back to normal. But we'll send you home having had some sort of emotional, spiritual high. Giving you some little bit of advice about how Jesus can help you live a little bit better. And boy, is that tempting. Because it feels great. It does. If you let yourself get caught up in it, it feels wonderful. Powerful. Spiritual. But it fades away so quickly. And everyone knows it fades away quickly. And so next week, next month, next year, the songs will be a little bit more emotional. The lighting will be a little bit different. What worked last year won't work next year. The songs we sang two years ago were dead and boring. We've got to come up with new ones. The songs we're singing today we won't be singing in two years. The clothes we're wearing today will be different because they'll be out of style. It used to be the the soul patch, the authority patch. Now it's the skinny jeans. Because we can look authentic to those around us. It always has to change to keep up with emotions and feelings that just don't last. It's professional, it's well produced, but it doesn't last. 
siren call that leads to disaster and sadness and emptiness. Finally, you're not going to the same church anymore. You're going to a church that does it better, has a better band, has a more engaging speaker. And so what we see in the church are crowds of people just shifting from one place to the other, just like the crowds following Jesus. Let me go where there's something happening. It's even an old book that many of us studied, Experiencing God. How do you experience God? Find out what he's doing and go there and be a part of it. Okay. A siren call that's empty. Well, there's, a, there's another way to do something similar. The rational encounter with God. That emotional stuff, that's not us. That's not what we do. That's not how we do things. That's not what we're about. I left that behind. I used to be there. I'm a smarter Christian now. I'm a more mature Christian now. I've put away childish things. But there's another siren call, and it has a couple little variations in itself. Common characteristic, though. We can figure things out. We can find a solution. We can find a formula, a rational, logical answer to life and the things of life and apply those lessons, learned properly, applied properly, and we'll all be well and we'll be living in a happy, wonderful world. Everything will be just. Everything will be good. Crowds around Jesus were looking for a thrill or high. Who was looking for the rational solution? Pharisees, the scribes. We've got it figured out. And you can kind of understand their attitude a little bit. They're at a point in Jewish history where they know that they've messed up as a people. The prophets have told them. They've been in exile. They've been ruled by foreign entities for centuries. We sinned. We didn't keep the law. We did not follow after God, but chased after our own gods. We were stiff-necked. We were rebellious. So what's the solution? Learn the law and obey it rigorously, strictly. Take those two great laws, love God and love your neighbor, summarized in the Ten Commandments, which emphasize the same two things, and apply them in 613 separate laws that must be obeyed strictly to be considered righteous before God. And when you think about it, it's not just 613 laws. It's all the different various ways those 613 laws can be interpreted and applied. What a burden. What a yoke. Complicated, difficult, but that's okay. We figured it out. We know how to live righteously before God. Follow these rules and we'll receive God's blessing. And we know the timetable. We know Messiah is right around the corner. Our, our, our best theologians have figured that out. They've read Daniel. We need to be prepared. All Messiah has to do is show up and take the throne. Drive out the Romans. We've got the obedience thing figured out. We just need some king <coughs> to drive out our foreign enemy. This is also a very tempting siren call. 
The application is rather obvious in the world around us again. Who has things figured out in the world that we live in? Scientists, economists, psychology. Counselors and therapists will tell you how to live. Politicians have it figured out. Doctors have it figured out. Physical trainers and nutritionists and life coaches and relationship experts have it figured out if you'll just listen to them and follow their advice. Investment advisors will make you rich. Now is the time to buy gold. Now is the time to buy silver. Never mind that they've been saying the same thing for 15 years every day. Experts have it figured out. Experts say. Experts tell us. Just follow the expert's advice and all will be well. Except it isn't. Look around the world. We talk about this amongst ourselves. The world stinks. And unfortunately, as much as we'd like to see the application of the gospel going out and making things better, which it would if it was happening, it's, it's not right now. Society has turned against the church here in America, much like it already has in Europe. Life isn't getting any better right now. More and more expertise satisfies us less and less. That's the curse of idolatry. It's the curse of sin. We crave our idols and we crave our sin more and more and more, and they satisfy less and less and less. Does that invade the church? Well, of course it does. Two ends of the spectrum, I think. One end is, well, if we just get the right programs, have enough programs to meet the needs of various people inside the church and outside of the church, help people, take care of people, meet their needs in various ways, often called the social gospel. But it's just another attempt to try to make life around us better, to fix poor, hurting, needy people. Give them food, give them housing, give them clothes and education and counseling and care of all kinds. But too often when that becomes the focus of the church, well, that becomes the focus of the church. We're meeting material needs and not spiritual needs. And so the church just becomes another community care organization. Politicians and businessmen and others standing in our way, well, let's agitate and promote and strive against them. Pick one party over another. You know, in my daily work, I, I, I analyze loan requests for churches. I have seen churches become so dependent on government grants that if those grants go away, they cannot survive. That's tragic. It's terrible. I don't want my church dependent upon the government. So sides are taken politically, organizationally, culturally, socially, and all it does is widen the gap between the two sides. Churches become partisan. It happens both on the left and on the right, depending on what the social issue is or the social need is. Again, we can see blatant examples and bemoan them, but there's a more subtle form. Churches that have theology and doctrine and practice all figured out and become prideful in that knowledge. Some of them we call fundamentalists. 
Some of them are expert apologists who know everything and the answer to everything. Modern-day Pharisees, modern-day scribes. But we've got to point the finger at ourselves as well. This is our particular tendency. This is the siren call that afflicts the Reformed more than any other. Because we love to study God's Word, which is a good thing, and we should study it. But boy, we can become arrogant. Pridefully certain of ourselves and our theology. If you don't believe what I believe the way I believe it and do it the way that I do it, you're at best a second-class Christian. And maybe not even that. I I might, might have to question whether you really believe. That's terrible. What a horrible attitude to have towards others in the faith. And we do this in exquisite detail. Maybe not 613 laws, but have you seen a systematic theology book? And we can't even agree on that. This siren call is attractive because it gives us a sense of certainty about life, which in turn makes us feel good again. We're settled. We're comfortable. We know where the sandbox is and how to play in it. It's appealing for those of us who don't like uncertainty, who are uncomfortable with the unknown, who like a well-ordered life and philosophy of life, a well-managed life. But the fruit of it is so often flavorless, or even at worst, rotten prideful and judgmental, dead, unemotional orthodoxy, and divisive as well. True of fundamentalists of all kinds in all areas of the church, and sadly true of us far too often in the Reformed faith. Presbyterians are often called by others the split peas because we split into so many denominations. That's not a compliment, people. We split because one group is certain that they are right and the other group is wrong. A siren call. Attractive, but leads to sadness and division and destruction. They're all too widespread. They're all too common and tragic because they're so terribly unsatisfying in the end. Now that brings us to this simple story of Jesus and Levi. Matthew, as he's called as well, the tax collector. A simple story. Jesus sees Levi sitting at the tax collector's booth collecting taxes and says one thing to him, follow me. He's not asking. (laughs) It's a command. Follow me. And Levi gets up and leaves everything to follow Jesus. Throws a feast for Jesus in his own home and invites other tax collectors and what the Pharisees are going to call sinners to his home. The Pharisees and scribes know of this. It's probably later, sometime later, because there's no way the Pharisees and scribes are going into Levi's house. They pollute themselves by doing so, make themselves unclean. So at some later point, they're with Jesus and his disciples, and they go to they don't go to Jesus, they go to the disciples. Why why do you guys do this? Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
Don't you know that makes you unclean? But rather than the disciples, Jesus answers in verses 31 and 32, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to the call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's a powerful answer. Let's look at what Jesus is saying here real quickly. Talking about those who are well is a bit of irony on Jesus' part. The Pharisees and the scribes think they are well. They think they're righteous, but they're really not. Doctors, nevertheless, don't treat healthy people. Healthy people don't need them. Sick people do. Tax collectors and sinners are sick. They need help. They need a physician. And Levi seems to have recognized this sickness in in himself and knows that following the physician when commanded is good for him. And he invites his friends to do so as well, to come and meet this physician. And that's what Jesus is saying. I am the great physician who has come to heal the sick. What he means by this, he makes explicit in his next statement. I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The cure for sickness, the cure for sin, is repentance. Not a general feeling or statement of being sorry for my sin. Repentance is offered, and it must be offered, and acknowledged to God himself. Admit it and confess it. We talked about this a few weeks ago in regard to Psalm 32. And then receive the forgiveness of God. Jesus comes, the Word made flesh, calls sinners to repentance, and we know he offers forgiveness because that's what we saw in the preceding verses. He has the authority to call to repentance, He has the authority to forgive. And who needs to repent? (laughs) Paul said it. Everyone. Without exception. There's no one righteous. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The crowds looking for another amazing, awe-inspiring, extraordinary experience have sinned and need to repent. That's what they need. Not another experience. Not another encounter. The Pharisees and scribes, secure in their own ability to figure things out and do it rightly, need to repent. They don't need more laws. They don't need more rules. They're not going to obey them anyway. That's what the Bible tells us over and over again, whether it's in the New Testament or the Old. Even our reading from Ezekiel. The siren calls of encounters with God and secure knowledge don't satisfy. So don't follow them. Don't answer the call. Tie yourself to the mast. Cling to the rock. The old rugged cross, as the old song says. The siren calls do not satisfy. So what satisfies? Not a candy bar. What satisfies is truth. And the truth begins with with me, with us. Admitting I'm a sinner. Admitting I deserve God's wrath, His punishment. Admitting it again, not just in a general theoretical sense, but me, it's personal. I deserve this. And admitting it to God. True repentance. Realizing I can't save myself. I can't find joy and thrills 
I can't find satisfaction anywhere but as a gift from God that he offers freely in Jesus Christ. True righteousness is beyond our ability because we're sinners, born in sin and continuing in sin. So we need righteousness from another source, and we get it from Christ Jesus by faith. Not working for it, not buying it, a simple gift from God. There's another thing about the Greek sirens. Mythology says that if their song was ever resisted, they'd be destroyed. And there's a couple stories that recount that happening to the the sirens. What happens to the siren calls of the world around us when we resist them and answer Jesus' call instead? He destroys them. He takes those seductive calls and makes them distasteful to us, undesirable. They no longer have power over you. Repentance and faith is not just a simple transaction that saves you from future wrath and destruction, gives you eternal life, but it also transforms us. It changes us into a new creation. We have better experiences. We have better knowledge. Think about this. Who cannot be moved, and I mean deeply moved, by the realization that that God has gone out of his way, sheerly because of his own mercy and grace, out of the great love with which he loved us, to rescue me, and I know who I am, from my own sin. That, 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 that's incredibly moving. Deeply powerful. There's... No emotion, I think, so deep and moving as that powerful realization. I don't want repetitive songs and mood lighting. I want songs that remind me of Jesus and his work for me. I don't want advice from a happy-go-lucky coach up on a stage. I want to be reminded day in and day out, week in and week out, of what God has done for me in Jesus Christ, because I need that reminder. What's more powerful than knowing the truth of the gospel? Knowing who God is, knowing what he's done, knowing who Jesus is, the power of the Holy Spirit. What is more satisfying than studying God's word and seeing on every page his grace and his mercy and his love towards sinners who don't deserve it? That's worth studying. I've said before, when we understand the gospel... Pride is impossible, because I didn't do anything to earn it. But guilt goes away as well. Because my sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. Repentance in the end is as our forefathers described it. They called it repentance unto life. They called it a saving grace, whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin, an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it, unto God, with full purpose of, and endeavoring after new obedience. That, my friends, is repentance. That's an experience worth having. That's knowledge worth having. The sirens are calling. Do not answer. 
Tie yourself to the mast. The call is attractive, but it will destroy you. But the good news is this. Jesus is also calling, not in some cheap, corny little book, but through the word of his gospel. Salvation. Repent. Believe. Experience and know life that is a true blessing from God. Not just now, but forever and ever. That's a call I'm willing to hear. It's a call I'm willing to answer. But it doesn't matter if you're willing. Jesus commands it. Repent. Believe. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are utterly without ability to do anything on our own. To satisfy you or to be called righteous. What an irony it is to read Ezekiel and know that there is no one who can meet those demands and fulfill them. But what a precious truth it is that Jesus came and did. And he offers us that obedience as ours simply with the open hand of faith. Stir up our faith. Increase our faith. Increase our love and appreciation for you and for what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. Our love for him. Our love of the spirit and the gifts that he pours out upon us. Our love of the body of Christ our love of our neighbor so that they might share in through our witness through our call to repentance the same blessings and gifts that we receive we thank you for the knowledge we have of salvation the things that you have revealed to us about yourself the great and wonderful truths your laws which are holy and good and wonderful write them on our hearts write them in our minds teach us to learn them and to obey them with joy for they are good they are wonderful. Drive away pride and arrogance, divisiveness. Drive away fear, guilt. May our satisfaction be found in you and in you alone. We ask it, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.